All right, I want to welcome you back. You can you need to find a seat. Um, we're waiting on one of our uh, one of our uh, guys is back there uh, coming. A couple things I'll, I'll just introduce you to today's topic and to our mission to Guatemala. Two things that are on your tables. One is a, a two-sided white sheet of paper that kind of tells you a little bit about our trips and um, and in our and what we do when we're there and what kind of things you expect. And the other one is a pink sheet, which is kind of like your um, part to connect, whether that's you signing up to go with us, you financially supporting someone else that is going, or just the trip in general, or your opportunity to help with construction materials. And um, a, a lot of that, again, you can find on the other sheet of paper what, what that looks like. Um, and we have information on, on our website. Um, so let me uh, introduce you to the story. Uh, in uh, 1960, a civil war broke out in, in Guatemala. And um, this is in Guatemala, you're familiar, is in Central um, America. And a civil war broke out and kind of pinned two, two forces against each other, the government and then what you would know as the rebels or guerrilla fighters. You might hear those words thrown out there. Um, two uh, uh, violent um, and power uh, hungry and um, uh, security uh, wanting groups, if that makes sense to you, where they both wanted somewhat power or just didn't want the government to overrun them. And uh, what would happen is these, these, the government would send soldiers into different villages throughout Guatemala, and they would um, require allegiance from the people of the village. Um, and then the, the guerrillas, the rebels, would come into the village, and they would say and demand the same things. We want your allegiance um, to us. And uh, propaganda was spread, uh, um, whether it was flyers dropped from helicopters or just, um, well, just rumors and lies were spread about both sides. And it became a very violent struggle where um, uh, government would come into villages and they would hear stories that maybe they were helping um, the people of that village were helping feed or house or, um, you know, plot against the government. And they would come in and they would completely wipe out all the men. Um, and, and, and boys in that village, um, uh, literally just, just kill them uh, uh, and leave the women and the children running into the mountains, um, running out of the cities, running uh, to, to, to safety. And this civil war went on from uh, 1960 to 1996 is when that civil war ended. And so for all those years, um, hundreds and thousands of people were being slaughtered um, by the government, by the, the rebels, just to, again, as they try to claim power over these um, people in, in this in this nation. Uh, so what happened is these these women that were left as widows and these children left uh, uh, as uh, as um, orphans would go into these uh, just hide and they would hide and and into the, and they would start these little communities in these rural and they call it the Ishil Triangle. Which um, if you're familiar at all with Guatemala, this is uh, the Mayan Indians uh, is there um, would be the, the the kind of the proper name and they speak. Um, uh, Ishil is the language that they speak in these in these uh, mountains, and then, so they don't speak Spanish everywhere. Some of the big cities speak Spanish, but mostly Ishil uh, is the language of the Mayan uh, Mayan people that are in these villages. And so they would be out there in the middle of nowhere, with no homes, nothing. They would start from scratch. Just these children and these widows. And um, and, and my church, what I was a part of in Michigan in the early two thousands, we took a trip to uh, Chichi Casananga, which is a village in um, Guatemala, and a man named Ron had a place called Pray America. It was Manoste Jesus. It was a, um, a facility that he had that had an orphanage that he was starting. Um, currently now has a clean water f- uh, uh, factory. It has a shoe factory. It has a, an organization where they take orphans and they um, school them and then send them back into the cities, uh, educated and as leaders into their city. Um, this is in a, in a bigger city. And on that trip, we met a man named Andreas. Andreas is a coffee farmer. He lives up in the Ashil Triangle, in these, uh, these desolate, primitive mountain area. And uh, he, he would communicate with this guy named Ron and say, hey, there are villages up there with, where they, they have no homes, they have no water, they have no food. Can you send people to help? Um, and, and so we met Andreas. We talked to him. We said, well, what can we do? And, and from the beginning, the first thing we did was we started to buy his coffee. And we, so we started to bring his coffee back to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and and try to support him and make sure that he was um, uh, financially covered so that we could then begin to work with him and he could not worry about selling his coffee, but going and figuring out what needs are, are needed to be met. And so in 2009, our church here, the Grove, took our first trip to a village called San Miguel, and we built um, about 20 houses in that village. 
And the last day we were there, um, we were uh, kind of being honored by the, the, the leaders of that village. And all of a sudden, groups started coming from uh, surrounding villages with lists and papers and along with signatures and um, of, of villages around that needed things, water, food, homes. And we realized how, how big of a, uh, a project this was, was going to be. And so from there, uh, and every year since, um, minus last year, our church didn't go, but a, the church from Michigan still went. We've been going and building homes in these villages. Um, uh, several, uh, or I'm sorry, a few hundred houses have been built already. We have a feeding program in two of the villages. We have a school in one of the villages, and you're going to hear a little bit more about those things. Um, and we have uh, water that's uh, been traveling to some of these villages, uh, clean water um, now. And so every year we're continuing to go back. We continue to connect with this man named Andreas. And, and he, um, throughout the year, gets a list of things that are needed in the area. And uh, he kind of measures what's the most urgent. And then he tells us, and we communicate throughout. We're sending money to help with different projects. And then physically we go once a year. Um, the winter time, there's about three trips that go um, throughout uh, February, March, and April um, that go to, to Guatemala. And so we have been on those trips now since 2009. And we're going to go again in 2017. And so this is a chance for you to hear about those, uh, those trips that we've been on to ask questions. And this is how this is going to work if you've been a part of our Guatemala Sundays before. There's going to be a phone number that's on the screen behind me. It's just a temporary phone number. It won't exist after today. Um, and, uh, and I want you to use that number um, to text in your questions. Now, here's the deal. We have uh, several teenagers in the room today. Can teenagers raise your hand? If you're not sure how to text, I want you to find one of those teenagers to do it. You can also go on Facebook, and we have an event on our, on our Grove uh, Church um, Facebook page, the, the Guatemala Sunday event, and you can go there and you can post questions. So I'm going to have a, a temporary phone that's connected to that temporary number up here with me and the laptop to be able to get those questions. So from now till the end of service, I want you to ask some questions, um, any question you want, and I'll kind of filter through them, and I'll ask the panel. Now, the panel has already been given some questions that I want them to speak to specifically, and they're going to have a chance to introduce themselves here in a moment. But uh, um, again, this is an opportunity for you. So the number will come on the screen. you also see some, um, some photos uh, kind of going through and things like that and, uh, as they speak to certain projects, okay? Cool? All right, so we're going to go ahead and, and, and get started with that. Did I miss anything on the opening? Are we good? Okay. All right. So uh, one of the things, I know I'm kind of in the shadow. I don't know. You guys are more lit up than mine. Um, light lit up. Um, so one of the things with, with, with this story with Andreas, uh, uh, if you've been a part of the Grove for uh, uh, years, uh, you know that we also serve the coffee here. We also were able to bag it and get it into your home. Some of you uh, would buy that, and it would help support the mission to Andreas. Um, it's been a few years since we've been able to do that. Uh, my, my contact down there uh, who worked up at a, at a coffee house um, kind of got out of the business. But in, actually, in the last two weeks, we've been talking, and the plan is, is that we're going to go back into that, that we want to go back into supporting Andreas in that way and, and purchasing his coffee so that we can have it here for you on Sundays as well as available for you guys to get that into your homes, and it kind of connects to the message, and so that's something exciting that, that we're having uh, going on with this trip and, and, and our connection with Andreas. But I'm going to let these guys kind of introduce themselves uh, and just let them kind of go down the row and say their names and uh, how many trips you've been on, maybe if you remember the dates that you went on, kind of a thing, and then I'll just feed them some questions as your questions come in. So again, the number's going to be on the screen. Um, text your questions in or go, or go on the Facebook page, and uh, we'll get those questions from there, okay? Um, my name is Brayden Henry, and I have been to Guatemala twice. I went in 2014 and 2015. I'm Megan Phillippe. Um, I went, I've gone one time to Guatemala, and it was in 2015. Uh, Mason Phillippe, um, I've been, this is, or I've been three times, uh, 13, 14, and 15. I got my own. <laughs> uh, Tim Warner, and I think my first trip was 2011, I want to say, in 2012. It's been a little while since I've been back, but I enjoy Guatemala Sunday because I can relive some of my own adventures and uh, memories. I'm Tyler Bennett. I went in 2013 and 2015. 
And I'm Jody Hiltman, and I went in 2013, 2015. All right, so um, again, you'll find a lot of this information uh, on this white sheet of paper in your, your uh, um, table. So what to kind of expect when you go on a trip, um, it, it, we go as a, it's a building trip. We're going there specifically to build homes for widows and, and orphans. And so, um, again, we, we do have a feeding program. We do have a, a school and a teacher that we provide and that we uh, have recently built a school for. And again, we'll get to that in a moment. But it's a building, it's a building uh, um, uh, trip. And so if you've been on mission trips before, some of you may have gone and you've done um, evangelism with maybe it's uh, preaching and it's, or drama and things like that. Um, and uh, th- this one's a little bit different. This is definitely hands-on. We're building where it's a extreme trip. We're, we're in, uh, again, the mountains, the, the elevation, the, the travel, the, 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 the ground. I mean, it's, it's, it's an outdoor trip. We're, we're sleeping on uh, whether it's dirt floors or concrete floors in some of these villages or um, in, in some of these homes that you're a part of. Um, it's like I said, it's, it's an intense trip. It's, it's not like a, uh, like a, well, and we're on our own. This isn't like a, we're not with an affiliation, like a big umbrella. And, you know, this is just us and a, a group from Michigan that are, are constantly going together, um, working with Andreas and, and, you know, building these homes. And so I want, uh, um, to start off with, with Tyler. I've asked Tyler to kind of just talk about the, the construction itself, what it looks like for houses, what that, what that means, what we're doing, um, and, and how that kind of goes. So Tyler, I'll pass it off to you. All right, I have some slides for this. Don, could you take it to the, there you go, the smoky shed. All right, this is an example of the houses that they're currently living in, and there's a wide variety. Some are nicer than the others, but this is about average. It's roughly maybe a third the size of this stage, and as you can see, you have sunlight coming through all the cracks, and the reason I took this picture was because you can see that, you know, when the wind blows, you feel it. When the rain rains, you feel it, and those are beds you see there, and they actually have theirs elevated off the floor using sticks and logs. But it's a fairly cramped little location, and you may have six to eight people sleeping in this. And as you can see in the top right, that campfire is in the corner of the room, and that is what they cook on and provide somewhat little bit of a heat for the, the room. And they can get down to, you know, 45 degrees at night. It's pretty cold. Occasionally they'll see a little bit of snow in the mountains, but that's a, that's a home. Uh, a lot of the problems they have there is the smoke inhalation, too, because the, the fire is going, and sure, it helps with the bugs biting you, but breathe that every night, you can get sick pretty easily. Go to the next slide. The places that we get the material, it's a little bit different every year, but basically you have the wood being cut before we get there. It's being cross-cut out of uh, larger trees, somewhere with the mountain range nearby, and that usually gets taken to the through the lots where the houses are being built. The rest of the material goes up the mountain with us on the bus. Uh, sometimes it takes two buses because it's so heavy. But we have the roofing materials. We'll have nails. We'll have chainsaws, the gas for the chainsaws, the bar oil, anything that you will most likely break. Everybody has multi-tools. Uh, you take your hammers and nails. We pack that and bring it from our homes with us. Uh, usually try to save weight by, instead of getting the really nice, cool, tool belt. We have little pouches that says Ace Hardware on it or something like that. So we can afford to lose that. Right, next slide. When we first get there, this is the first day. There's a lot of people on one site learning how to put the house together. We usually break up into teams of six people or so after that. So what you're looking at is on the top left view, that is uh, you're at a home site. And usually they know we're coming. They're excited about it. And they went to these random locations around the valley there, and they've dug out notches on the side of the mountain. So once they dig those notches out, they'll have the wood dropped off there. And we come there, and you never know what you're going to get. You might have wood planks for siding that are eight inches wide. You may have some that are a foot and a half. It, it varies. So we'll stack them all up, get a good idea of what we're dealing with. We'll throw out some of the rotten pieces if we can afford to do so. And then we cut them all the length. And that determines how large the house is. We usually shoot for six-foot lengths to make a 12-foot a 12-foot house. So as you see in the top right, we're cutting our uh, custom pieces for uh, parts of the house. And at the bottom there, we're starting to lay them houses out. And the way you do that is you'll build two six-foot panels and combine them for one wall. And then they stand it up. Go to the next slide. So you can see on the, the right-hand side there, the whole team, which we have plenty of help in that, in that particular build scenario, we set the house up on its side there, and then we start scabbing off of it with other supports. 
And we're, we're Guatemala level, so anywhere within this range, we're good. <laughs> uh, we have a, we're real careful, we're real slow on the first one, so the first house might take us half a day to build. But by the time we get down to the nitty-gritty, we can get it done in about an hour and a half, two hours, if we're really going fast. The next slide. So we get the walls formed up, and you notice there's no doors or windows. That's the last step, actually. Uh, you get the house framed in, and you use the pieces that are going to be on the roof, you use it for bracing. So as you can see, everybody's standing on these little pieces of wood, putting the roof structure together. But as you build the roof, you're basically taking wood out from underneath yourself. Then you jump off the side. But, uh, so you can see this location has got a pretty good view. Um, you never know if you're going to be right next to a, a chicken shed that's already there or if you're hiking for 45 minutes to go to this scenic view, nice place that just takes all the world to get to it. Next slide. This is the roof going on. As you can see, I didn't take a lot of pictures of it. Usually my phone was in a safe kept place so I wouldn't break it. But uh, the locals try to help you if they're able. Um, usually it's elderly old women and they can't get up on the side. But the little kids, they'll take every tool you have and start using it somewhere in the house. So you've got to round them up afterwards. Uh, but getting the, getting the roof on, that's usually when everything starts coming together and you can actually get some shade because it gets a little bit warm sometimes. It'll be in the 80s on a hot day. So we get the house put together. Um, and then we start cutting the windows. The next slide. I don't have a good picture of this because usually I was keeping the kids away from the chainsaws that they were running. Um, we cut the windows to what side and which way they want to point it. Uh, it's a real basic structure for window. You don't have a pre-made one. You just frame a square, screw it together, nail it together with whatever you have, and then you just cut out around it and the hinges pop the window open. So this is a finished house. And as you can see, the kids are... Excited because they've got new stuff to play with. You've got pieces of wood laying everywhere. They round all that up and pile it up. And if we have time, we try to customize the houses by taking the scraps and build little shelves in the corners. Or in this case, I don't know how, this, how old this woman was, but she was about this tall. And she was so sweet, couldn't understand a word she was saying. But we saw that she needed things in her house that was her, at her height. So we, we made her a small desk. She had a small chair that we fixed. It was broken. And we put our little shelf in. So we try to make the house a little bit customized to the people and their needs. And this is a picture of a, uh, one of the stoves that if we have ex additional funding, we try to put a new stove in. And this is, this is dramatic difference for them. Where you did have a fire burning inside your home and you're breathing in all that smoke and you're trying to cook on it, which, you know, we, we go camping and we have a nice metal grate. Well, when they ran from their homes during the Civil War, they didn't bring anything with them, you know, if they had something on their, in their pockets that was their head of the game. So what we did is uh, we figured out that this is a stove, I think it's actually designed in Colorado, but you can buy them in different countries around the world. It's basically, it looks like a five-gallon bucket with reinforcement, and you can put less wood into it than a fire and get more he heat concentrated on your pot. So I can boil a large, like, spaghetti-sized pot of water with one of those in 10 minutes, as opposed to waiting for 45 minutes and dealing with all the smoke blowing around, so... If we have funds left over in our efforts, we try to pick one of these up and put it in each home because it helps their health and their food income. All right. Uh, one of the things that came uh, specifically to the construction part of it, there was a question that arose about perhaps I physically, you know, I've never built before. I've never swung a hammer. I've never been a part of that. What is it something for me to do? Is that, am I, am oh, I yeah. building still? You'll learn how to hammer to some extent, but... It's not tough at all. I have never made anything in my life, ever. I just wanted to go and be a part. So I was put on the cut team two years in a row, and I was like a professional about that. I pretty, took that job pretty seriously because I can lift. So I could, I can lift the stacks of wood. I could level them. I could learn how to, to measure them and cut them, and I could move the boards. So we went ahead of the job sites where the building crew would come after us and we would prepare the sites, um, be, you know, so it would be the boards would be ready and that they would just have to come in and start the building process. So that was uh, something that I was able to do. And I really enjoyed doing that because um, I'm not super confident with the hammer, but hey. And can... left-handed. And I'm left-handed. We didn't have left-handed left hammers or chainsaws. I know, it was so terrible. To... I know. Right, right, it was tough. But, you know, <laughs> so there's, but honestly, there's jobs for everybody. Even if you can't be on the cut team, 
Um, every house that we go to, there's always like an audience of people, children and other women, and they're gathering to see where their friend's home is going to be built and how it's going to come together. Or perhaps the children are with this particular widow and she's taken them in because they are without parents. So even if you can't build, there's always children to interact with. We play bubble, we do bubbles and paint fingernails and, you know, play ball or whatever. And you can do that while the, the, the building process is go- taking place. And it's, and it's incredibly helpful. To, you you to kind have. of referenced uh, like when you would go ahead. What do, what do you mean? Like, am I looking at a, like a, a big field and you're building a bunch of houses all next to each other? What, what does it look like to build houses? Um, so when you get there, you are, we're, we had 24 houses to build on the last trip that we went on. And um, you essentially have a little tour guide, which um, is usually a, a 12-year-old child that's, you know, I'm like a foot taller than or something. And he's going to take us to these um, job sites. And it's not like you arrive in the village and you're like, oh, okay, we're going to build 24 houses right here. He, um, we would hike and hike and hike for hours to try to find some of these job sites. And so, um, essentially you're, they partner each team with a, a, a guide and they're taking us to these places that have already been carved out, um, flattened pieces of land in the parts of the mountains. So, it's a it's an adventure. Uh, yeah, you might get lucky and find and have a house that's built close by, like our home base. But m- most part, you're going to pack what you need for the day, and you're going to be hiking the whole day to to get to where you need to be. So, I'd say three out of the twenty are the far off ones. Yeah. Most of them are like walking from here to Bryson City or less. It's, yeah. it's not too bad. And don't imagine a bunch of Olympians wearing book bags. It's usually we bring our big pack up, and we have a central location that we all sleep and eat and congregate at we'll leave our stuff there and it's safe there people will watch it for us and then you have a small book bag and your little hammer belt and a wad of you know nails for the day and then we'll pack water on us and we just it's not a i'm not gonna say it's not a strenuous hike but it's not it's not awful i mean you can handle it we stop and we rest and wait for each other you know i'll stop and complain just to make everybody else feel good (laughs) we we take care of each other so when we Fly into Guatemala City, we, we head about a 10-hour trip to Santa Avelina, where uh, Andreas' home is. And from there, we kind of um, get and we plan, and then we go out from there, and, and the buses will take us on these four-lane highways to uh, these remote villages. Um, <laughs> I, I'm joking. There's no four lanes in there. Um, very small, uh, um, uh, uneven roads up to these, these villages. And so we'll get there, and we'll find whether it's a school that the government has built or um, some kind of um, recreation. There's sometimes we, we've seen a uh, covered area with a basketball court and we'll stay there and then each morning wake up and kind of split up in teams and go out so that's what the congregate that we kind of congregate at one spot with our big bags and then we stay in the village for three four five days depending on how long the trip is and then we head back to andres's home someone asked you know what how many days the trip is we normally fly out on a friday and we return the saturday to follow so um we get there um we you know we stay one night in in a in a hotel in guatemala city and then it's um we go to uh, these to Andres's village, and then we go on to other villages for three or four days, and kind of back to Andreas's, and then and then um, back to Guatemala City. Uh, Mason, you've been on uh, three of these trips, um, and so what I ask for you, you know, why why go back? What, what's what was different for you? What was like going on your first trip, and then you know, comparing the, the next two trips you went on. Um. Well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I guess you break it into multiple different things. Uh, I know you lately, well, not lately, all the time we talk about community here and how important that is. Um, we have our best understanding, I guess, as Americans of our community um, with each other on Sundays, maybe after church or sometime during the week. But when you get down there, you're not in America or North America in the United States. I always get corrected on that. I say it wrong. But... Um, you kind of just have each other and any walls that you being in your comfort zone of Bryson city or surrounding area may have, uh, they kind of break down and you kind of really get to see everybody's true side and, uh, learn everyone, uh, for who they, I mean, really are like in tough situations and situations where they're not comfortable, where they're maybe scared. Um, you know, it's, it's just fun to really get to know somebody that you thought you knew 
and I mean, that would be one reason that I continue to go back is just learning. I mean, I thought I was involved in this church, and then I went, and then I really felt like I was going home for Christmas to my family, like every Sunday coming back to church. I mean, it was like you knew them, like, really well. Um, the people there are phenomenal. Um, I don't know how to explain that other than you have to go and see it for yourself. But they're... I don't know. There's just a lot of things that we have here that we take for granted, and you go there, and it's just a whole different ball game. But um, the people treat you nicer than some people's families treat them. I, I guess here, you know, at times, uh, you don't. Hangry doesn't exist, which is kind of nice because it exists here for sure. I get hangry all the time. But you get down there, and it's just like you know what you're working for. You know what you're hungry for. You know, you have something to push you that much more. Um, and then just the opportunity to, the adventure of it, I guess I'd say the, um, I've been on mission, mission trips before and they're usually pretty safe and structured, like you said, you know, big umbrella organizations and and they do a lot of good and they're definitely worth doing. Uh, this one was different. This is like, it has that element of adventure to it. Uh, your 10 hours, like you said, uh, if you want to feel like you're away from anything, civilized i guess you'd say or or technological this is the trip but i mean you're up on the side of a mountain probably don't really even realize where you are i mean it's i mean i don't want to give it that like oh it's scary you know don't i mean because i I definitely recommend it for anyone but it's just that getting out of your comfort zone is just a when you embrace that is a phenomenal feeling and uh the views are gosh they're awesome but uh and the children the the kids they're the ones that get me i think by the end of it, I, uh, they're just sweet little folks. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. They're great. Um, and you come home and you get back into your normal routine, but you still see those faces, and sometimes it'll stop you where you're at and put you in a kind of a, I don't know, your own little bubble, a Guatemala bu- bubble you bring back with you. But um, there's a lot of reasons I continue to go back, uh, but I'm not going to preach all day, but it's... I recommend it to anybody, so. Question came in, uh, any of you guys can answer this question, uh, about communicating. Uh, one was specific about, do you need translators? And would that be Spanish? Would that be another language? And how is the cu- communication breakdown? Tyler, you, you mentioned the little um, old woman that you didn't understand anything she said. Well, how does that work when you go to these villages? And, and again, anyone can answer these. Everybody can understand a smile. You get smiles nonstop while you're there. And you're walking along a path, you know, going back to get some water or some nails that I forgot every time. Uh, you're walking back to the work site, and you, you see this, you know, little kid or a lady walking along, and they're looking down. They don't really look at you, but you just smile at them, and suddenly they'll stop, and this, the greatest smile will come back to you. They understand that you're there to help them, and they want to show you where you need to go. Now, the little boys will get you off on the wrong trail on purpose on occasion, but <laughs> everybody loves that you're there, and they want to help you. Um, I see kids climbing 20 foot up a, uh, was it an avocado tree, getting us fruit. Um, they're just bringing us whatever they can do. They'll make us these corn tortillas that are wonderful. Uh, they can understand a smile, and they know you're there to help them. And if you can point and make weird symbols and try to draw something, heaven help you, but they will, they will get you where you need to go. They want you there. It's just kind of like you're, you're at a family reunion, and nobody can understand each other. Well, that's kind of normal anyways, right? Well, they want you there, and they'll show you where you need to go. Um, The language, we have uh, two or three people in the group that can speak Spanish, and all the little kids on most of the villages that I've been to, they have school, you know, two to four hours a day. You know, you see them all come out of their little huts, and they're, like, cleaner than we are by far. They'll have their nice clothes on, and they go somewhere during the day, and that's why we try to build really fast during that time because it's chaos when they get out. But... uh, Everybody knows you're there for a reason, and they want to help you help them. Uh, so communication's not an issue. You'll get good at it by the third day. But I wouldn't worry about that aspect. We, and we take, we do, like you said, we take a translator. And when you are communicating with, with a villager, they're speaking a shield, and then Andres will translate it from a shield to Spanish, and then our translator will translate it from Spanish to English. So. Yeah, so we, we, there are uh, needs for Spanish translators. We uh, offer um, somewhat of a uh, uh, kind of price break uh, to help 
get them there because we, we need that. And when we get to some of the places before we're with Andreas um, and before we're uh, into the Ashiel villages, uh, we, we, we definitely need people that can do more than order at a restaurant. And so that's not translate, translator. If you can order, that's awesome, but that we need more than, more than that. So um, uh, one of the uh, questions that came is like, when it comes to being self-sustaining, do, do we provide anything for them that when we walk away, again, you just mentioned, Tyler, we help, they, they want to help, help themselves kind of a thing. How does that look? Is there ways that we've been able to do that, bring things to the village to allow them to uh, be that way? Um, and, uh, and then the question came was, well, does the government, then when we leave, government come in and take everything and then leave them with, um, you know, without anything? Um, well, the, the last time that we went, um, we did really well. We, people donated a lot, which was amazing. And so we were able to put a stove in every house, like Tyler said, and that's really important. Um, and then we also... How much, uh, how much were those stoves? That was a they were $45 a piece. It's like a no-brainer. Life-changing. Life-changing. I mean, 40% less smoke and I think like a quarter of the wood, which is important because Guatemala is actually losing 2% of their forests a year. It's pretty, uh, pretty bad. Um, and then, so this last time we gave them all stoves and everybody got a piglet and a hoe and a machete so they could garden and they can raise their pigs and they can breed them and they can eat them. And so that's the goal. And the pigs were $12 a piece, I think, if that, I mean, it's like so easy to change these people's lives. And there's ways to provide, I mean, we, whether it's, uh, burrows or, um, cows and these are things, you know, that they can use. They sell the manure to farmers who then use it for fertilizer um, they use they, their burrows to, like, rent out for people to use. Um, like, we, we actually rent burrows when we go to help get some of the lamina and other tools to the villages. And so and it provides them, so, you know, to be self-sustaining. One of the things um, we provided for a couple of villages is, is a molina. Um, uh, you may want to share what a molina is. If you know. A molina is a corn Tell, you grinder. you have to give that microphone to somebody else, man. What's that? No, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, go. One more. A molina. <laughs> a very large piece of looks like farm equipment that sits on the floor um it's probably the size of this mat that if you can see that up here uh, yeah we know the sound because they start up in the morning at about f- five or five thirty pop 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 really loud straight muffler um, they run off of diesel or gasoline um, so you see like a big belt going from the motor to basically a corn grinder and here you think oh we can grind corn that's wonderful well down there People are growing corn on, like, these little bitty sides of the mountains all over the place. And in order to get it to a sellable state, your best option is to grind it up. Well, there's not exactly corn grinders on every corner of a trail there. So if you are a village that has a molina, you are suddenly a trade center. So people are wanting to come by your village, and it ends up connecting the infrastructure of how the whole area works. So much like a railroad puts, you know, Midwestern towns on the map, a molina is the same way in Guatemala. It makes tortillas. Yeah, tortillas. That's a staple down there. So they can sell. All right. Um, a question came about uh, memories. Like, what were your best memory? And, Brain, I know you specifically had, had a uh, story you wanted to share about. So, after, on the last day in the village, we've built all the houses and we um, do a dedication ceremony. And so we all come together to pray over the houses. And that's when we gave them the stoves and all that sort of thing. And some of the women that we've built houses for will, will share their story. And every one of them, every one of them is just gut-wrenching. Um, and so I was going to share one of them with you guys. So this last trip that we went on, um, this woman named Juana um, told her story. And she was four years old when um, the government came to her house and killed her father and her brother. And, um, she and her mother and her sisters fled and they got separated and they had decided, you know, they had just said, if we get separated, meet back at the house in two days. So she came back to the house and, um, her mom and her sisters were killed. She's four and she fled again. And in her running through the woods, she fell repeatedly And so she ended up showing some of us her, um, her wounds, which were across her thighs and so deep, the scars are so deep that I don't even know how she can walk. Like, I don't know how the muscle could possibly connect through those scars. 
and she had to bandage them herself, and she survived, uh, I don't know how long, by herself in the, in the woods until a family took her in. Um, when, at the time that we were there, she was 43 years old, so she had been, um, you know, basically 40 years without any family and living in someone else's home. She can't work. You know, she, it's hard for her to even walk up and down these really steep mountains. So she's completely dependent on this community that was created. And um, for her to get her own house, to not feel like she had to rely on everybody else was pretty powerful for her. And one of the things that she said was, I've been praying for years and years for you guys to come. And um, I didn't know whether or not anybody would come. And I didn't know, I wasn't really sure anymore whether or not there was a God. But you came, and now I know that there is a God. And now I know that people are good. questions are coming in about people that have never traveled before, you know, maybe contemplating going, uh, maybe can't afford to go, things like that. Meg, uh, speak to like your, you went on one trip so far. What was your experience going on for the first time? And what would you say to people that are contemplating going that maybe have never traveled before, like something like this, or think they can't afford to go? Um, Great question. Um, I was dating Mason at the time and he had already gone a couple of times to Guatemala and he was talking to me about it and it was like immediately I was just like sure I'll go like without even like really thinking about it and then I was like well maybe I should actually take a little time to pray about this I feel like that would be the right move and but it from the first moment that it was talked about or even brought up about Guatemala it just felt like the right thing to do I didn't know anything about it yet Um, I learned through the meetings and talking with everyone and um, preparing for the trip uh, is I don't know, you can get a lot of different opinions, but every trip is different and unique in its own way. Um, Everyone that's been before can pretty much tell you what you need to pack and everything, but I know one of the best parts about the trip is just how many ways people can help and all the ways um, that people can be involved. So starting when you decide to go to Guatemala, obviously you have to come up with the funding. And for yourself to go, you have to figure out how you're going to get there. And just talking to people about the trip, I, it was actually a little overwhelming how many people in my life supported me and just everyone going. Um, Another church actually paid for almost my entire trip to go. People from my work were like, hey, I want to buy a stove or anything. So the trip in itself allows so many people to be involved, Um, whether you're going or whether you're home and you're praying for us or I received letters from family members and friends, like, saying, like, way to go, that's awesome, you know, that you're helping. And so your community is huge just from the beginning when you're getting to go. Um, It was, I guess, I didn't really get nervous until we were leaving, and I was like, okay, I'm going to Guatemala, and I have a backpack that I can only fit 50 pounds in, and um, so getting everything together and going, but you feel so blessed on this trip like I feel like we were protected the whole time like there was no question um, whether I was meant to be there or not it is it is a huge commitment but it is the best commitment you'll ever make Um, the ways that you get to go and help people and how much it helps you as a person um, is just unbelievable Uh, So the financial side is usually taken care of. I mean, just spreading the word and allowing people to help you help other people. Um, And then while you're there, um, it was my first time. And so it it was a lot of, like, watching and reflecting and seeing how everything works. And, like, Braden and multiple people had been there, and they brought all these little toys and all this for all the kids. And, you know, learning as you're there what to do um, is... You know, it makes you want to go back again. Uh, but it's such, I don't even know. There's there's so many ways. Again, like the community helping us go and praying for us, and then we're helping these people build these homes. But at the same time, they're helping us realize how much we have and how, you know, lucky we are to live where we live 
um, but also to be given the opportunities to go and help people. And building homes without even having to say, you know, this is who God is, they know it. They know why we're there, and they know who sent us and who's allowing us to do the job that we're doing. Uh, several questions have come in about cost and, and information. This pink sheet, again, all everything's on there. The cost, when our uh, um, first meeting is, when the deposits do. Uh, some asked about passports. Yes, if you're thinking about going, go ahead and start the process to get your passport. You have your passport then, right, no matter what. Um, talking to your doctors about shots, and sometimes uh, some doctors will recommend certain shots, um, things like that. But a lot of that information is covered on the sheet, as well as uh, we're meeting on uh, Sunday, October 16th, for everyone that's interested but this is the way you kind of sign up, and there's a lot of information in there um, as well. Uh, $1,200 is the cost of the trip. Um, and one asks where we fly. We, you know, we leave from Atlanta or Charlotte, depending on the price of the tickets. We try to purchase the tickets in December. Um, so we have our, 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 our team by the 1st of November. We know who's going, so we can start looking at prices for, for uh, our travel. Um, one of the things uh, that we've been really blessed to be a part of is uh, the village of Chassis. We've been, every year the, the team gets to go and stop by the village of Chassis. It's, it's rather close to um, Andreas's home. Uh, there's a, a beautiful walking path to it. It goes by a waterfall. Several of you have seen photos from that waterfall. Um, that everyone has had a chance to experience that on a trip. Uh, it's got a, a pretty uh, amazing story to, to that waterfall um, that Andreas tells. And so if you want to hear it, you'll have to go. Um, hear him tell it. Um, but uh, uh, we, there is a, a feeding program in a school and a teacher that's all provided by, by us, by you guys um, through your giving, through uh, your trip donations that you've given to them in the past, um, where we're able to uh, um, do those things. And, and so um, I'm going to kind of work with Tim on this. He's going to kind of share a little bit about that village and about what goes on there. He's been to that village three times now, twice now. Um, and he's going to be able to share a little bit about that village. And then I got some specifics that we've just got updated with um, in the last week. So go ahead. First of all. And these I, are, I'm sorry, these are going to be pictures that are going behind him of what he's about to share. So I'm left-handed, and that's Jeff's number. And he says he doesn't get nearly as many calls late at night as he would like. <laughs> Let's just start with that. Um, yeah, uh, Chasis. Tim was one of our elders at the church. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This morning he was. Oh, so. oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that I looked at, I, I looked at, and like Jeff asked me to talk specifically about Chassis, and I, I try when I travel specifically to take you know a journal or as my friends like to say your diary. Uh, but one of the things that stood out. Um, was this entry and, and you know it's one of the one of the things that kind of stuck with with me and echo a lot of the, the same experiences that the other folks have. First of all, to get up there, and I won't go into the specific details on this, but you talk about like the the travel and the this and the that and this entry. And Jeff Marvel remember like we loaded thirty two people up in like two pickup trucks with like a cattle guard on the back and. <laughs> Uh, yeah, by the end, people were crying, <laughs> crying, <laughs> but that's the trip gets better Hold on. because they were so happy to be where they were. <laughs> and for us mountain guys that were used to riding around in the back of pickup trucks, like we knew to get off a place where you could jump off fast if you needed to, but not everybody had planned that far ahead. The issue was, the issue was, you know, it started, it started raining and, and it is part of the adventure of it. And that's going up to this place. And I, on my two trips, never got to go see the waterfall because usually we're traveling in the evening and, uh, it just wasn't, it didn't allow to happen. But, uh, our time in the village today, this is Chassis, was perhaps the most touched I've been so far as we give to the school we visited uh, so the children can have at least one meal a day. Kids were excited to see us and get loved on. People took pictures, hugged them, gave them fives and knuckle bumps. All this was great, but in my vast experience with kids, I know there is little to nothing that beats or can get them excited than a chase. It started just a few, and soon it turned into a complete melee. Kids running 
like a school of fish from a shark splitting this way, that, and screaming. And I'm sure the teacher loved me for that. Uh, I think I gave them something to remember. And then I talked about uh, how we walked through the village uh, to the soccer field in this big open area where we could all meet as a big group. Um, a couple of the kids read to us and gave us some of, uh, some of our group some homemade presents and apologized that they couldn't give more. And they gave unselfishly and beautifully. And I prayed that there would be good to come from our efforts and the village would continue to rebuild. And I would like to go back to that place. So, and you see, you know, we talk about the poverty and the the people that don't have so much. Well, we do have so much in this place. And, uh, the humble spirit of these folks and, and uh, Jeff Marr goes, hey, you got the giving moment today, right? And I was like, kind of put on the spot because he does. But I feel like this would have been a great one because these kids that have nothing that might get one, that might be the one meal a day that they get. These kids that are learning how to read uh, and learn and as a result of some of the efforts that are here, the, the giving that is here. And it, it is a humbling place because there's, I know there's so many times where I give and I don't give the way I should. I don't give as fully and as holy as I should, uh, but it's pretty awesome going there, and you see firsthand in person uh, the effects uh, of gifts and giving and, and what it can do, what it can mean for a village like that, and for them to be saying, I'm sorry, you can't give me more, it's, uh, yeah, it's one that hits home. So the, when we first started going to this village back in 2009, there were about 22 uh, kids under the age of 12 that were a part of this program. It has grown to over 100 kids that are under the age of 12 that are now fed one meal a day and a, a fresh meal each day. And it's really uh, amazing when you go to one village and then you go to Jasis and you can just see uh, a different life these kids, these kids live from the, just the color of their eyes and hair and the, the, the growth of what that one meal is, is changing, again, life-changing for these these kids. Um, we were able to now start another feeding program in, in another village. Um, but the, there was a school that we also provided for in, in Chasis where um, the uh, kids would come in and be a part of, and we had a teacher that would provide from them, and uh, we would pay the teacher's salary to be a part of this. She would teach Spanish. She would teach uh, Bible um, to these kids, and she was kind of in, in a shed that was next to this other shed that had the feeding program, um, and, and the government owned that. It was kind of partly owned by the government. There was a big school that was right next to it, um, but the government would not allow these kids or those, those teachers to come into that school. They said no. Um, so they needed their own, own school to be a part of. And so over the last year, through giving and things like that, we, um, as you see on, the, on the, the pictures, we built a new school for these kids in, in the village of Chassis. So they have a brand new school to go to um, every day to be a part of. And with that, we're adding on, and this is the pictures of the celebration. Uh, they, on uh, the July 31st, they sub- celebrated this. Um, that's in front of the school right there. They had a, kind of a big party. Um, and come uh, March when we're there, we're going to be able to dedicate it. Um, they're using it now, but there's some things that are, aren't done on it. And so those are some specific needs that we're going to try to fundraise for. Um, for instance, the f- three things that came this week, they're looking for gutters, looking for a sliding door and gravel for, their, um, for the school. Uh, the gate, the gutters, I'm sorry, were $400. The sliding door is $800, and the gravel is about $1,200 U.S. dollars to, to, so they can finish some of the school. Obviously, it's on a dirt floor. They're trying to get gravel in there. Um, the, the price for concrete is, is way too much for them, and so they've asked for gravel floors and things like that. And so um, uh, we get to be a part of that. So that'll be some of our fundraising we're doing is trying to get those things finished so that the, the school is complete. Um, and then from there, we're going to try to build a new kitchen um, and that they're asking for, um, that's, you know, a bigger, and so they, uh, with a, a seating place for the kids to eat lunch, uh, every day. Um, and so that's something neat that we get to be a part of, and we get to go every year and, and, and be a part of that. And so, um, uh, and if you go, you'll get to be a part of that as well. A couple more things just here, and I, I don't, I know we're going to kind of wrap up and close, and I'm going to, uh, let these guys uh, take a seat, and, uh, um, the band's going to play, and Jeff, Jeff's going to come up and kind of close us down here. Um, but, uh, again, some of the costs and things you had specifically are, could be answered on that pink sheet as well as the team is going to be available in the back if you have um, some of those questions that you want to 
um, to, to ask that you didn't get uh, answered um, um, today. Um, someone asked one thing is, can outsiders go? Um, people that aren't from the Grove, and um, if you've listened to me in the last year, there are no outsiders, right, at the Grove. So um, everyone's welcome here, and that's how it is. So if you know someone else that might not be a part of this community that wants to go, um, you know, let's talk and see if that, that's the case. Maybe you have a family member that lives somewhere else that wants to be a part of it. We are coordinating with the team from Michigan. There are limited spots. Um, uh, there are about 30 can fit, 32 can fit on, on one of the buses. We like to just try to take one bus a year. Um, and so we get half of those seats, and already some of those seats are already taken. So uh, um, uh, it's, it's kind of first come, first serve. Um, there are other trips that go on different weeks, and so there are the potential of two groups leaving from here to go and, and, and coordinate with other teams and, and be there. Um, but we're looking at focusing on the trip in March, March 3rd through 11th, as our group limited seats. So, again, filling out that pink form and getting it turned in today to kind of get your name on that list. Um, and then we'll meet at the end of, uh, middle of October to talk more about that. So, um, But if you could help me thank these guys for kind of sharing and, and, and going, you guys can have a seat. I'm going to ask Jeff Marr to come join me on stage, and uh, um, the band's going to close with uh, a song. One of the questions that came a few times through were questions about faith and story and well, Christian community. And, you know, again, this uh, Mayan village that uh, um, knows nothing, these kids know nothing but um, civil war. Their whole life has been civil war. Again, it's 1960 to the end of 96 is when the civil war ended. It didn't end for the people that lived in the mountain villages. They didn't have Facebook to tell them that, hey, it's over. They didn't have uh, emails to tell them that it's over. It's, a lot of these villagers don't trust. They don't know um, what's going on. And, and so this is the first face they see. Um, one of the advantages we have when we go there is the fact that they don't know that the United States government had their hand in, in a lot of this, which is, which is unfortunate and tragic, but true reality of the story of America when we get involved in foreign politics and, 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 and the blood that's on our hands as, as American people. Um, we have a chance to go back and restore the image of God that's been broken. And so we get to go and, and speak truth and tell story and be a part of their story. And like what you heard with Braden where uh, the, the widow can say, I, didn't, I just didn't know if I could believe anymore. I, I prayed and you didn't come, but now you came and I know there's a God that exists. And that's our opportunity to go outside these walls and restore that image that's been broken. Um, and so some of you, that's your story. You've had a broken image of God your entire life, and you've been able to come and it's been restored for you as well. And now you get to go and do that. And whether that's you going physically on the plane or um, in, in the bus, or just you're financially helping someone else go because you can do that, um, it's all of us going and being a part of something that's bigger. God, uh, we're going through the story in Matthew, and if you know the closing of Matthew, Jesus is there with his disciples, and he says, I've given you all authority. In my name, now go, make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, and, and that's what we've been charged to do is to go and to kind of get out of our comfort zone. And whether that's opening up on a wallet or a checkbook or uh, packing a, a, a backpack and, and loading up on a trip, um, we're all a part of it. And so um, Jeff's going to just cl close us and, and talk briefly. And uh, the song that the band's going to sing has been our kind of anthem when it comes to this idea of going, this mission to to uh, Western North Carolina, these mountains, and the mountains uh, of Guatemala.